This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Eugene Vinitsky is a PhD student at UC Berkeley, advised by Alexandra Bayan, and he is interned at Tesla and DeepMind. Thanks so much for joining us, Eugene. Oh, really psyched to be here. I uh, love this podcast. So yeah, super happy. Awesome. Thanks so much. How do you like to describe what you do and your focus area? Yeah. Uh, so my PhD has mostly uh, kind of focused around uh, transportation problems uh, and applications of reinforcement learning to problems in transportation, um, particularly as relates to uh, designing new cruise controllers that improve some kind of performance metric on the highway. Uh, and then some amount of cooperative behavior between those two cruise controllers. Um, and then sort of as time has gone on and I've tried to kind of push the boundaries of this field, uh, I've, I've delved a bit into uh, multi-agent reinforcement learning um, in terms of like analyzing some of the algorithms. And then uh, the, I guess the last piece is... Um, and again, this ties back to this cruise control stuff is um, kind of thinking about robustness in reinforcement learning because we, we designed these cruise controllers and we want to, this summer, put them on the highway. And so we now have this uh, concurrent nightmare of trying to think about how uh, whether RL methods are robust and how to make them robust and so on. Uh, so I guess there's three pieces there. <laughs> so let's talk about them. Um, we're going to start with uh, one of your more, more recent papers, uh, the social norms paper. So that was a learning agent that acquires social norms from public sanctions in a decentralized multi-agent setting. That was first author yourself at all. And uh, so can you give us a, a brief overview of, of this paper? Uh, this was some joint work with some lovely folks at DeepMind. Um, and they have built out this uh, large set of multi-agent benchmarks that kind of test uh, features of like cooperation and competition, all these like uh, kind of uh game theoretic questions, but in these extended settings, uh, which they call uh, sequential social dilemmas. So cooperation and competition uh, across time in these like kind of complex grid worlds. Um, and one of the uh, key sets of problems in that benchmark, benchmark is um, overcoming uh, collective action problems. So, you know, maybe we have some common pool resource like a, a fishery or something like that. And uh, we want to kind of optimize its usage. You know, everyone selfishly wants to use it as much as possible, but if anyone overuses it, uh, it depletes and then everyone is worse off than if they had cooperated. So I just want to point out that our, our very first episode, we we talked about this quite a, quite a bit with uh, with Natasha Jakes and talking about some of Joel uh, Lebo's uh, papers on, on this topic. So so I'm, I'm really happy to to uh, to hear more about it. Oh, man, yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed that episode. Natasha is a, just like a fantastic researcher. So we have these set of, of common resource dilemmas um, and we want to uh, develop agents that you know manage them effectively. There's some amount of evidence that that humans uh, can come up with kind of norms and solutions that allow them to manage these resources. Um, there's some great work by uh, Eleanor Ostrom um, on this topic and, and others. Um, but if you you know take a, a bunch of agents and you train them using multi-agent reinforcement learning, and you do this in a totally decentralized fashion where each agent is optimizing its own reward function. Uh, basically, what happens in almost every trial uh, is that the agents will converge on total free riding. So uh, to maybe put a concrete point on it, so you have the setting where um, agents have a are, are like running around this grid world trying to eat as many apples as possible, um, and they have a preference over which type of apples they eat. So there are, say, red apples and green apples and blue apples, uh, and some agents prefer red and some prefer green. Um, and by, by prefer, I mean that they get more reward from eating berries of that color. Um, and what you'll find if you run like straightforward, like decentralized multi-agent reinforcement learning is that they will all just uh, run around eating apples. And one key feature of this environment is that to maximize the number of apples, you need to like go around and recolor these like these planting sites. Um, so uh, when you recolor the planting sites as all of the planting sites in this map become the same color. The amount of berries generated of that color increases linearly. So um, 
everyone is best off if the map is entirely colored one color. Um, but instead of converging on a particular color, splitting the work and recoloring the map so that it's entirely one color, uh, the agents just kind of run around eating berries, don't do any coloring work, and are all like significantly worse off than if at the beginning of the episode they had split up the work and just colored the map. Um, so they're kind of failing to converge to cooperative behavior and free riding is dominant. Um, and so we were interested in you know, uh, coming up with other decentralized methods uh, that uh, are capable of overcoming these problems and leading to cooperative solutions rather than free riding. Um, and I guess I want to focus, focus on the word decentralized here. So um, if you use some kind of um, centralized method, like, for example, like you could have all the agents share a reward function. So whenever another agent eats, I also get some reward from that. That's not the sort of solution we're looking for, because we know that, you know, human beings uh, solve these uh, dilemmas without being able to share each other's reward functions, right? We converge on, on cooperative solutions without uh, all of us being trained by the same algorithm. So we want, we want to build algorithms that can do this in this fully decentralized fashion. We're kind of motivated by by the fact that you know, well, um, in video games, you know, it's it's perfectly sensible to have all of the agents controlled by the same algorithm, shared. But when you think about all these like new autonomous deployments that might be happening in the future, there are all these upcoming decentralized autonomous deployments that we're interested in, where you're going to have to do this in a decentralized fashion. So you know, uh, they're likely to be multiple autonomous car companies, each with deployed products. They are not going to agree to share. Uh, their policies with each other, or share their reward functions and things like that. So, so you know, there, there's a real, I think, uh, both technological and um, just purely pure interest in in designing decentralized algorithms that can come come to this kind of cooperative behavior. And so, we we took some amount of inspiration from literature on learning social norms and how social norms work in in human systems. Basically, what we said is, uh, you know, a social norm is um, a shared classifier on events that are approved and disapproved. Um, and this is, this is a concept really inspired by uh, work by Jillian Hadfeld. And so we said, okay, all right, so a social norm is a classifier that agrees on what's approved and disapproved. So let's, let's just do that. Let's train a classifier on, let's declare some set of events to be approved and disapproved. Uh, in, in these environments, there's a, a zapping action um, that you can use to zap other agents and that freezes them in place. And if they get zapped twice, they get some, some penalty reward. So let's call that a disapproved action and everything else an approval action. And we'll train a classifier that takes in some number of frames before a scene happens and predicts approved and disapproved. And then let's create some internal motivation to align with, the, with that classifier. So we add a small amount of pseudo reward for acting in approval or disapproval with your uh, internal classifier. And then let's see what happens. Uh, and what we found is that when you add that small amount of pseudo reward for following those, those classifiers, uh, then we got a lot more convergence to cooperative behavior and, and free riding basically disappeared from the uh, outcomes in the environment. So the idea is that we're, we're rating specific behaviors. Is that, that right? We're not, uh, we're not rating the reputation of individual agents themselves. Is that, is that the case? Yeah. So th there's not even really the ability to identify individual agents. So these agents are these little blocks walking around on a grid and we can't distinguish one agent from another. We're just saying we saw an agent do something. Would the other agents in the scene have zapped it? Uh, and if our classifier says that they would have, then we're going to get a small amount of reward for also zapping, i.e. disapproving. And if they wouldn't have, but we still zap anyway, so for example, we might zap them so that they freeze and we can steal their berry. Um, if it's the case that other agents would not have zapped in that scenario, then we'll be penalized for zapping or punishing. Um, so we are not, we're rating a specific behavior and there's no notion of individual agents uh whatsoever cool okay and then there's i guess there's no notion of like trust uh explicit trust between or, or i guess you would say if the agents trust each other's sanctioning data then there is kind of that implicit trust between the agents that they can trust each other's sanctionings how would you describe the trust scenario here yeah so the sanctionings are kind of ground truth events so um we might imagine so like to, to take a like a concrete example 
uh, you might imagine that every every time uh, an autonomous car gets honked at, um, that honking event is stored in some database uh, that everyone is able to access and see and use that to develop their own model of what other agents in the scene uh, approve or disapprove of. So I guess the the trust component of it comes into the fact that um, it's not explicitly modeled, but the, the trust thing is knowing that in a, the other agents in the scene are also kind of behaving in the appropriate way. Trusting that if I'm spending time appropriately coloring the berries so that we all get the right get increased reward in the future. The other agents in the scene are also doing it. Trust kind of operates in that manner, but there's no explicit representation of trust. Cool. So um, I, I love your example of using honks as as the labels, right? Is that what it would be? It would be a, that would be a sanctioning event. And then you would have, what is it true? You'd have only, uh, you'd kind of have only positive labels. Like, uh, do you have any indication of when, do you assume that when honks are not happening, that, that everything is kind of kind of going well yeah basically every non-honk event is 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 an explicit implicit approval so you know if no one honked at you probably that was a fine behavior yeah but but you know this is uh yeah so that's that's where your your positive and negative labels come from would you consider this kind of like a type of centralization in a sense because they're not being trained together but because their reward is kind of coupled in that way I guess you have the centralized database of sanctioning events. Is that right? Is that is that how the centralization comes in? Yeah. So that you you could kind of think of this as a centralized system, right? So there's there's a couple pieces in which it's centralized. One, everyone in the in the in the system has the same reward function, right? They have the same incentive to obey uh, the group norm, uh, the same incentive to not disobey the group norm. So that's kind of a piece of centralization. And and yes, there is this shared buffer that we can all access of the sanctioning events. Um, there is an ablation in the paper where we ask the question of, okay, can I learn what the group norm is just from my own observations? So, right, I um, move around in the world. Occasionally, I get sanctioned. And if we pretend for a second that I could kind of place myself into the shoes of the person who sanctioned me, which is um, maybe technically feasible uh, and certainly feasible in these grid worlds, um, then I can see what I did that caused them to sanction me, and I can learn on those those behaviors. And then I could take every set of events where I wasn't sanctioned and, and view those as approved. So you could also do this in a not centralized way. Um, and we found that that actually works pretty well, too, in, in these grid world examples. Cool. Okay. So do you see, I guess you see this type of technique potentially being useful in the real world in in the transportation setting as you described you know it's 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 a bit of a always there's always a big gap between these uh methods in a paper and something that's you know readily useful but i i, I was very enamored of this idea of kind of um a, a public database sanctioning and non-sanctioning events as a way of you know discovering what local social norms are uh in driving settings and then allowing agents to kind of adapt to them. You know, certainly from city to city, uh, there's there's huge variation in how people drive uh, and, and what the norms are around that. And so th- this isn't something really that the, the techniques in here cover, but but you could imagine that these sanctioning events are something that uh, these companies are, are willing to share since it usually, uh, since they're kind of incentivized to have other people obey what their their drivers think was, was uh, like bad behavior. Uh, and so you could you could maybe imagine constructing these databases and then training agents to uh, obey like local social norms in in different settings. I think as a driver, it would be so satisfying to be able to label uh, bad behavior on the road because when someone cuts me off or makes a dangerous maneuver, like I have, there's nothing. I, there's pretty much nothing I can do. I mean, I honk at them, they ignore it. Are you going to call the police for someone running a red light? Like it's just really there's no recourse. But just to have uh, have some of the like that, would, I would just feel better. <laughs> I would just feel so much better. Just be like, I sanctioned that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'd honk at them, and then you know, in the future, like there's going to be you know some autonomous car that's trained to you know obey your preferences in some way. Um, th- there's this there w- when I, when I say that, I realize that there is this feature of like uh, mechanism gating. So you know, you have a very particular preference over how people drive. If you're honking constantly, you're gonna you know overwhelm the buffer with 
your preferences. This this is not a mechanism that can't be gamed. Uh, it's it's still uh, potentially interesting, and you can maybe think about ways to prevent this type of gaming for sure. And then your your comment about different driving styles that are in different cities is pretty interesting. Like. Uh, I guess the whole idea of social norms, to my mind, the last few years has really uh, called into question some of our assumptions about social norms, like, you know, how the president of the U.S. is supposed to act was some kind of norm before. And a lot of these norms are just going out the window and we're and, we're, and then people are asking questions like, well, what, you know, who gets to define what is a social norm? Um, but I like that here the social norm is kind of just defined by uh, sort of on average what people what people sanction. Is that right? I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that, that is explicitly what it is. And so like, you know, the minute that these agents uh, approve and punish and don't punish in accord with the way that the other agents also agree on, that's a social norm, right? It may be a bad one. It may be a good one. It may be totally neutral and have no effect. But like, if we're all approving and disapproving in the same way, which is what this reward function incentivizes you to do, then, then, then you have you have a social norm that's operative. Yeah, that's that's what a social norm is. It's like a, a belief that uh, other others are going to treat me in a particular way if I act a certain way. We just yeah, we're just trying to give that to our agents here and hope that that leads to, to some better outcomes. Awesome. So, any follow up uh, work planned in this direction? Yeah, a little bit. Um, so, so one thing we don't really touch on in this paper that I think is interesting is the the setup of it is, as I just said, like if you if once agents start obeying or disobeying in accord with the classifier, if all the classifiers are relatively similar, then you have a social norm. But there's no operative mechanism here to distinguish between good social norms and bad social norms. So, for example, um, if everyone is free riding. And I punish any agent that tries to do something good. If that's our consensus, like anytime an agent tries to not free ride, it gets punished. That's also a social norm in this context. Um, it's a terrible one, but it is a social norm. And so one thing we don't touch on in this work is like, how do we get this mechanism to select good social norms rather than bad social norms? Um, so, you know, one kind of surface answer is you can have like a, a group selection process, right? So now there are multiple sets of agents that are learning and only the ones that, you know, have high reward continue to survive some kind of like evolutionary sense. Um, and that's going to select for good social norms instead of bad ones. But I think there's an interesting question on maybe how we can shape the learning dynamics so that it preferentially selects good social norms in the first place over bad ones, like everyone free rides. Okay, it's coming to mind where, you know, there's some drivers who are just so impatient and they'll honk if I'm slowing down for somebody, uh, which I think is a good, what I should be doing, but they're still honking me. So they're sanctioning me for, for actually what I think of as good behavior. So maybe that's an example of what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, we could all, like you get sanctioned by someone for slowing down and maybe you learn to pick up that behavior too. And in time, we all live in this consensus norm where like everyone is driving really dangerously anyone who drives safely is honked at and that's just the consensus and it's it would be terrible but like that could be the emergent social norm you know maybe in some cities already is so you have a a number of papers on uh on traffic simulation can you help us get oriented with the the general idea here uh what kind of general problems are you looking to tackle with with simulation there's this kind of really exciting under the radar thing I think that has happened, which is that, you know, like while we all talked about um, full self-driving and things like that, uh, like our highways started to become partially automated. So there are lots of uh, level two cruise controllers that do lane keeping and distance keep. Um, you still have to pay attention and keep your hands on the wheel, but you know, they, they're doing this, this automated driving and in some areas, the penetration of these level two things, I'm going to call them automated cars, but I mean cruise controllers really and like automated cruise control, uh, where these automated cars get, you know, three to 4% on a good day. So there's this increasing automation of our highways that is happening right now. We call this um, mixed autonomy traffic. So uh, there's a small amount of autonomous cars. There's a huge number of human drivers and they're all kind of operating together. And this is a really exciting opportunity um, because we can kind of decide what outcomes we want from the types of cruise controllers that are implemented. So um, every car company has some type of cruise controller. 
And these cruise controllers have some to be determined impact on traffic. Um, but we could also choose to rewrite those cruise controllers in, in different ways that maybe uh, optimize the throughput of a highway or optimize the energy efficiency of a highway. And so that's that's really the the type of problem that I've been trying to tackle over the course of my PhD is like, how should we select good uh, cruise controllers that uh, optimize some some desired traffic metric? And, and it's a really exciting opportunity because those cruise controllers are already there. They're already deployed. We could change the uh, parameters of that cruise controller tomorrow. It's, it's just a, a matter of will to do so and having a good, good controller to, put, to use. So I gather you use a simulator called Sumo, and then you developed a, a system called Flow. Can you tell us a bit about, uh, about Sumo uh, to start with? Like, wh- what, is, what is Sumo doing? What does it model? What does it abstract away? What kind of simulation yeah. uh, is this in a little more detail? Yeah, so Sumo is this wonderful open source micro simulation platform, which generally does traffic at the micro level. So there are a lot of different levels you can we can, you can model traffic at, right? So you can model it at the level of flows between origins and destinations. Um, you can model it at the level of like individual traffic links, and then you can go all the way down to the bottom and like model the behavior of individual drivers. Generally, the flow models these drivers at the level of like of not like really fine grain automated driving using lidar, but more like uh, just kind of distance keep to the car in front of you uh, and and occasional lane changing behavior. But it is it is a micro model. It's modeling the behavior of individual drivers in response to the scene around them, and so it lets us investigate questions about you know if I change the behavior of a fraction of these drivers. How do the other drivers respond? What is the impact on some some relevant traffic metrics and so on? So that that's what Flow does. It's it's a wonderful tool. The uh, developers of it have been working on it for I don't know ten plus years now and are super responsive. So my whole PhD is built on it. So I wanted to give appropriate credit to those the folks for doing this wonderful open source work. Awesome. Okay, and then you've developed a system called Flow. I gather. Can you tell us uh, a little bit more about that one? Yeah. So I have to pause here. Um, because it's flow is developed initially by uh, Kathy Wu and an amazing team of undergrads. Kathy Wu is now a professor at MIT. And then Abdul Rahman Kredier and I uh, extended it a lot, uh, again, in collaboration with a, a huge team of wonderful undergrads and master students, just to, to give credit where credit's due. Yeah, so flow is a... Um, a library built atop Sumo that provides a Pythonic interface and some pre-built building blocks for investigating the effect of autonomous vehicles and modified cruise controllers on traffic. Um, so we have built out this like big set of pre-existing networks um, that you can play around with. So like uh, like there's a ring of traffic, there's a toy intersection, then there's like a, a kind of mini model of Manhattan that you can scale up and down, a model of the San Francisco Oakland Bay Bridge, and then we're about to release uh, models of a section of the I-210 in Los Angeles and the I-24 in Tennessee. And so what we try to do is make it easy for um, existing machine learning practitioners to kind of play with and modify Sumo uh, using tools that they already know how to do and reinforcement learning libraries that they are comfortable using. So yeah, Flow just lets you kind of easily modify these networks, insert new different types of cruise controllers, run RL algorithms, design new reward functions, and build new networks uh, without having to go into Sumo and modify it in ways that might be maybe harder for users. Cool. And then I'm not sure if you heard the episode where we had uh, Professor Shimon Whiteson, uh, who founded Latent Logic, which I gather models human, human driver behavior. And that yeah. company was acquired by Waymo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't really discuss uh, with him too much about the details of that, but I gather that modeling human driver behavior is is a pretty deep topic. And I guess are there other simulators that that do this in more in in at different levels, or are they pretty similar, or or how how might they might they differ? Yeah, so th- there's a, there's a lot of variation here. So um, I'm a huge fan of Professor Whiteson's work. Um, they. Uh, but I, I assume that he and Weibo are modeling these as much more fine-grained controllers. So, um, you know, at the level of like small turns and how do I go around a corner and, and uh, take an on-ramp. Sumo is modeling th- the cars are basically on rails. Um, they can they can move forwards and backwards and they'll stay in their lane uh, no matter what you do. So it's it's not it's not 
a matter of uh, optimizing like really small level in, uh, individual decision making. Um, but there is a really large existing literature on uh, modeling driving at these levels. So there's a particularly popular model called the intelligent driver model, which models the human driver as an ordinary differential equation. And, uh, you know, it takes in, you know, distance to the lead car, speed of the lead car, speed of yourself, and converts that into an expected acceleration modulated by some noise. Um, and so th this is kind of the level that, that these simulators that we use are operating at. Um, you know, there are, uh, there are, however, you know, different ways to build that driver model. So, you know, there's, there's other driver models that people use, like optimal velocity models and things. But so it, it's, a, it's at like one level of abstraction above what they might be doing at, at Waymo. And there are a lot of other simulators, uh, Amson, VisSim, um, none of which we use. We have, uh, we, you know, we really like that Sumo is open source. Um, I, I, I'm not super interested in releasing tools that can't be used by other people. So we've, we've primarily played with Sumo. But there are other simulators we've thought about that maybe uh, operate at a slightly more fine-grained level. But since we're generally interested in traffic and transportation throughput, we want to simulate as fast as possible. And so this is the, the, the lowest level we can simulate at, uh, at a reasonable speed. Um, without giving up the kind of micro dynamics that we care about. Okay, that makes total sense. So let's jump into your uh, your next paper here. This is Lagrangian control through deep RL applications to bottleneck decongestion. That was first author yourself uh, at all in 2018. Can you uh, give us a brief idea of, of what's going on in this paper, Eugene? Yeah. So I believe, if I remember correctly, that Kanad Parvate is also a co-first author on this paper. So what's happening here is we wanted to think about the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge has a set of traffic lights on it. And those traffic lights turn on when, uh, whenever it gets too congested. And the goal is to mitigate this thing called capacity drop. So as if you think about the inflow-outflow relation, so the number of cars that go into a network and the number of cars that go out, when the inflow is small, uh, there's like a, one, a linear relationship between the inflow and the outflow. As many cars go in, as come out. But as you um, kind of uh, increase that, when you have a, a bottleneck, so some number of lanes that constrict to a smaller number of lanes, above a certain inflow, the outflow will actually start to drop off. That linear relationship is broken. And so you get less outflow than inflow, and you start to get this buildup at the bottleneck. And so to remain in this linear regime, you will have, say, traffic lights that prevent the inflow from ever getting too large uh, so that you never get this bottleneck from forming. And what we're interested in doing is thinking about if there was a way to kind of replace uh, that traffic light with kind of mobile traffic lights. So let the AVs act as kind of adaptive traffic lights, look at the flow around them, determine whether their lane should go or not go. And then use that to kind of uh, keep uh, the inflow in the appropriate regime uh, without having to, say, uh, have the cost of building another set of traffic lights. So maybe you don't deploy this on the Bay Bridge where there's already the light, but maybe you can deploy this at other known bottlenecks uh, without having to build new expensive infrastructure. Um, and what we found was that, you know, this, uh, this actually worked remarkably well. The cars could almost equal the performance of a pre-existing bottleneck at a 10% penetration rate, which is a bit above where we are now. But yeah, that's the idea is like, how can we view autonomous cars as kind of mobile traffic lights? And, and so this is centralized um, control, unlike your previous paper, is that right? Yeah, so this is kind of a, a history of deep RL libraries in, in a nutshell. Uh, there was not uh, a prominent existing multi-agent RL library at the time. Uh, so even though we wanted to do this in decentralized settings, this was basically, you know, one of the first RL papers we wrote. So we were still figuring things out uh, and we didn't feel ready to write our own RL library. Uh, and so it's it's in a centralized setting. Yeah. So all the cars are, they, we take the, the network and we cut it up into bits. And then the centralized network makes decisions about what all the cars in a given chunk are going to do. So if you're in that chunk, every car in that chunk will make the same decision. This works out okay because mostly the decision you're making is, I'm right in front of the bottleneck. Does the set of cars behind me go or not go? And so, like, 
if you go, every car behind you should probably also go. It, you don't give too much up here. And then on the terminology, what is meant by Lagrangian control? Um, I gathered that it's in contrast to Eulerian control, but I, I don't actually know what either of those terms mean. Yeah, so so this is kind of um, uh, a suggestion on the part of my PI. So it's it's about uh, the Lagrangian setting is when you switch from viewing the thing as a flow to looking at on the, like if you're talking about a fluid, the Lagrangian view is when you're looking uh, like as though you're riding atop an individual particle. Um, and so here, like we've moved from this setting where the lights are looking at the total flow to uh, looking at uh, an individual vehicle within the flow as a controller. And so we, we called it Lagrangian. Uh, but there's not something particularly deep there, except that we are, you know, looking, uh, it is the individual elements of that flow that are making the control decisions. And so is there some, do you have some idea of like, what is the maximum flow rate that you could achieve with like the most perfect controller? Or is that just super obvious given the, the nature of the outflow road? There is an obvious and non-obvious answer. So before you consider, if you if you assume that the merging dynamics are conventional human merging dynamics, then then you know that the outflow is wherever exactly that like inflow outflow curve starts to drop off. So you want to be exactly right before that inflow outflow curve drops off. You can't do better than that because if you go to higher inflows, the outflow starts to go down and so you're 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 losing up. But if you go beyond that and you start to think about the AVs having different merging dynamics than the humans, then you can start to think about the point at which that curve drops off moving to higher inflows. So like the, if the AVs can somehow merge more efficiently or kind of engineer the dynamics of the humans around them as well, then you can start to go to higher inflows. But without that, then you could, you do know where the, the cap is. It's exactly wherever that curve starts to drop off. And then on the centralization, decentralization question, like, is it crazy to think about centralized solutions i I get that decentralized solutions are in a way more general and safer in a sense if ever you know if the communication system goes down but it seems like we could be giving up a lot by by not considering a centralized solution like it it seems like if if we if i had a choice of both it would be simpler to centralize it and uh and i I might expect better results if we could centralize is it does anyone consider that as a possibility or is that just um, discarded on the face of it. So there's there's a bit of an open research question here. So in some follow up work um, that uh, we we did examine a decentralized solution, and we found that that decentralized solution outperformed the centralized solution. Like it had better throughput. And is that that next this next paper, the optimizing mixed autonomy traffic flow paper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yes. So we can kind of fuse this discussion. Um, yeah. So we we. Uh, the folks at RLlib uh, built this lovely multi-agent RL library that we started using for this problem. And so uh, what we found was that if we did this in a decentralized fashion, so each agent, they all share the same controller, uh, but they're all making their decisions locally, uh, then we would outperform the throughput of the centralized controller. Now, in like a strict technical sense, like this is not correct. Like a centralized solution should always do better than a decentralized solution. Mm-hmm. But... There, there are associated optimization problems, right? So with the centralized solution, we like had to cut up the network into these little chunks that restricted the expressiveness of our policy. And then, you know, also there's kind of this like curse of dimensionality issue. So the centralized solution had some like 20 or 40 actions, uh, you know, it was making a decision for each of these chunks and that, you know, makes exploration harder in some ways. So while technically a centralized solution should do better than a decentralized solution, in this case, our decentralized controllers did better. But that doesn't, I think it is possible for someone to sit down and come up with a centralized solution that does better than our decentralized controllers. Um, And so given that's true, you could think about deploying centralized uh, solutions. But when you think about centralization, the issue becomes who is in charge of writing those centralized controllers, right? So, okay, so now you, you think about having some rule where once you get close to a bottleneck, some uh, you pass up control to some computer sitting nearby there and that computer decides your set of actions as you try to pass through that network but now now you got to ask like who wrote that controller how do you get the drivers to agree that they should cede control to that controller it feels like the government starts to get involved here and you know i that that runs into like questions of policy that i don't quite know how to answer <laughs> 
Yeah, if we can't trust them to uh, to do a lot simpler things, then it might not be a great idea to trust them to do uh, multi-agent decentralized RL. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's possible. Like, <laughs> I just it's it seems it's a big leap. But I mean, they do they do run the traffic lights. Yeah, you know, they do run the traffic lights. So I, I don't like how they do that. To be honest, <laughs> they're super inefficient. But um, oh, you should come to New York City. We have we have an amazing green wave setup here. Oh, they'll sometimes hit like 20, 20 green lights in a row. It's it's wonderful. Wow. Okay. And and you don't get the red wave. You know, maybe I I I've, I've mostly hit the green wave. Um, That's awesome. I, I'm sure someone out there, some traffic engineer, is sitting there and be like, no. The New York City traffic lights are horrible. <laughs> I could fix them if I had the chance, but it seems pretty good to me. So I guess maybe somewhere between decentralization and centralization is maybe something where the cars are communicating. Like you can imagine a scenario where all the Teslas on the road have a back channel and they're sharing notes and they're maybe they're all making their own decisions, but maybe they're sharing some observations. Um, do you think that's uh, do you think that's a feasible scenario? Yeah, uh, this is this is called CACC, so Cooperative uh, Autonomous Cruise Control. Um, there's a ton of work on this. I don't know about specifically applied to this problem. I think it'd be some interesting follow-up work for someone to do is to see what happens when you let the cars communicate with each other in this setting. I do think that it's possible, uh, but it becomes challenging as you think about there being multiple actors, right? So right now, if you are in Palo Alto, a lot of the cruise controllers that are operating are Teslas, but as other car companies start to roll out their solutions, uh, you kind of get this this cross conflict. Like, are they are the companies going to agree to 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 like coordinate their control together? Um, what happens if there are two people, two two companies, each of which are deploying those controllers, but those controllers don't mesh well when played together? So there there's, there again runs into these kind of technical problems. This is why I like the decentralized aspect of it. Is I think. This control, this decentralized controller, you could deploy and basically ignore what everyone else is doing. It doesn't matter what they do. If you drive up near the front of the bottleneck and you stop and only go when you feel ready, it, it doesn't matter what the person behind you is doing. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Makes sense. So let's move to your next paper that we've partially mentioned. That is optimizing mixed autonomy traffic flow with decentralized autonomous vehicles and multi-agent RL. First author yourself at all and that was 2020 so can you um mm -hmm. walk us through the main idea with this paper uh yeah uh and and uh, again <laughs> sorry to keep doing this to you but uh nathan loosely is the other joint co-first author thanks i appreciate that yeah so so the idea of this paper is um that we that now uh there are these multi-agent rl libraries that we can start using so we started looking at the fully decentralized solutions so uh, maybe communication between the cars, but each car is making its own decisions uh, locally. Um, so this is something that you could feasibly imagine actually deploying. Um, and we even look at, uh, you know, like really low penetration rates. So like four or 5% and, and see how well you can do in those, in those low settings. And we see that there is still some improvement over the human baseline. Um, yeah, so here um, all the cars are trained to jointly optimize the throughput. So the reward function is the number of cars that got through the system. Um, but uh, they're all making their own decisions locally to optimize that throughput together. Um, yeah. And, and sorry, what are they observing, uh, the cars in this case? Yeah, so we wanted this to be something that could genuinely employ. So we used kind of a, a radar observation. So they see cars um, uh, in front of them. Um, so they'll see like the, the nearest cars in front of them in each lane. It's, it's a little unrealistic. There are definitely settings where the radar would not return some of the cars that we return. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a radar observation space. So they'll see distance to lead cars, speed. I was just wondering if it's possible to kind of describe like the behavior of the policies that come out. Do they act a lot like humans or do they do, or do they act in a very different way to how humans would it? would behave they act they act nothing like humans um so basically what they do is they drive up to right before the entrance to the bottleneck and then they'll kind of look at how many cars are in the bottleneck and then one of the lanes will decide to go and it'll basically the the av at the front of the lane will go and then the hu it'll, the humans behind it will follow it along into the bottleneck and then all the other avs right in front of the bottleneck in the in the other adjacent lanes will not go they will wait until um, a sufficient uh, until the the first platoon has kind of 
gone part of the way through and then one of the other lanes will decide to go. So it's kind of this like smooth thing where one lane goes, then another lane goes, then another lane goes, where the, the platoon that left will be replaced with another AV that's blocking the entrance. And getting the particular timings of those platoons correct is hard. So you kind of want that as one platoon goes through, when the second platoon starts, it will also get through the bottleneck without kind of causing too many merge conflicts. So you'll see them like, stop and start and stop and start. And then occasionally when congestion does occur in the bottleneck, they'll all kind of wait until it's cleared out and then they'll start this process again. Yeah, it's very inhuman. Cool. Okay. And then, so they are, they're kind of acting not selfishly, right? And that's why they're able to do this. Whereas humans are all looking out for yeah. their own reward, personal reward. I mean, yeah, yes and no. So they are acting, they're, they're, they're trying to maximize this cooperative object. But because when you avoid congestion, everyone is better off. If, if humans were to do this, they would have been better off too, right? This is a case where like the Nash equilibrium and, and the social equilibrium are kind of not the same thing. Uh, everyone like greedily just going right away is, is worse off than if they had waited a little bit and kind of tried to coordinate. Okay, so I think you were saying that that there there's again no communication here, but that some of the sensors might be returning more than they would uh, with a realistic sensor. So, and maybe maybe that could be spanned by by a bit of communication. Or how do you see the potential for communication um, in these kind of situations? Yeah, so we didn't get we we looked at this a little bit, but it didn't didn't make it into the publication. But you could imagine that the cars nearby other cars broadcast signals. And what we wanted to see was kind of, we're hoping to see was kind of the emergence of some kind of car language where they would, you know, pass information up the stream. So there's this, this bottleneck um, where sometimes cars get congested and the cars often, the radar can't often see into that bottleneck. It's like too far away, but you could imagine the cars in the bottleneck passing information to the car behind them about the state of the bottleneck, which then gets passed to the car behind that. And so like, kind of this like global information would be communicated backwards up the flow. And so we, we played around with that a little bit. Um, we didn't see anything exciting happening, um, but, I, but I think there, there's potential in a lot of these settings to, to kind of think about what the, the language of cooperative uh, autonomous cruise controllers might, might be and look like. Uh, so all this stuff reminds me of a, a project that I did in grade seven. And in that project, I wrote that cars could go at full speed through intersections when they wouldn't need traffic lights and they could even do it in the dark as long as they were um, properly coordinated like a zipper. And, uh, and I show my dad and his, his first comment was, was like, yeah, but what about ha what happens when someone gets a flat tire or if a car breaks down, then uh, there's going to be a problem. So um, I, do, do you think that, that those kind of uh, issues are, are going to be key to handle? I mean, I understand this is preliminary work. I don't. It's not a criticism to say you should handle every single detail, but I wonder um, to what extent those types of um, of of unexpected events uh, would make a difference in in models like this. Yeah. So I think for things like maximizing intersection throughput, these kind of safety critical things are are really key, but they're less key for things like this where. You know, if I come, you know, I, I drive up to the intersection, I come to a stop, it, it doesn't matter what the people around me do. And a lot of the things that we build are kind of robust to these these issues. The, the one that does concern me and that I don't know how to model and that we've thought about a lot, but we, we don't know how to model is like this summer, we're doing this, uh, this big project where we take some of these cruise controllers that we've built, put them on the roadway, and we try to have them smooth waves and improve the energy efficiency of traffic. This is this big project with something called the Circles Consortium, uh, which partners from Vanderbilt and, and Rutgers and the Tennessee Department of Transportation and all sorts of folks. Um, and what we don't know is how people will adapt and, and respond to this non-human behavior. And this isn't something we, could, we do in our papers either. So, you know, uh, some of these car cruise controllers keep larger gaps than humans are used to. And they could respond to this in all sorts of unusual ways. They could start uh, lane changing more often than normal. They could just become angry uh, and start tailgating really aggressively. Or, you know, th there's all sorts of ways that humans can respond to these non-natural behaviors uh, that we don't know how to model. And we, we, we've, we occasionally try to model this by just like letting the human driver model do like a best response to our current controller. So, you know, you take your controller, you optimize it, then you take your human driver model and you like 
optimize its parameters as a best response to that, assuming that humans operate selfishly and then you go back and forth. But it's kind of an open question for us is like, what happens if the humans around you get annoyed or change their behavior in response to these non-human driving types? Cool. Okay. So um, let's move on to another paper that I just saw on Twitter today that you published, uh, which is a nice <laughs> surprise, hot off the press on Archive. So this yeah. is the, su- the Surprising Effectiveness of PPO in Cooperative Multi-Agent Games. And that is by you at all with yourself as a co-author. Is that correct? Yeah. So the the, the genesis of this, this paper um, is uh, that it, in a lot of the, the works that we've done, um, we've always used multi-agent PPO, like for everything. Uh, the reason being, we, we've never been able to get some of the off-policy methods that are popular in the multi-agent RL literature to work. Um, that, that's not to say that they can't. We just haven't been able to get them to work. So we've kind of used uh, PPO as our workhorse for everything. Uh, and I was talking to Yi Wu about this. Uh, and he he mentioned that, you know, uh, at OpenAI, a lot of their stuff had also been using PPO and they were kind of puzzled why this algorithm was not more more popular in the literature. Um, so um, I had a uh, very excellent undergrad, Akash Velu, and, and Yiwu had a student, Chao Yu. Uh, and we asked them to kind of start, start looking into this and trying to build some benchmarks for these um, on-policy methods compared to off-policy methods. And modulo the fact that we don't have a standard of evidence in RL. Uh, what we what we found was that uh, the sample complexity of these on policy methods in in three benchmarks, so uh, multi particle worlds, Starcraft, the Starcraft multi agent challenge, and Hanabi, that these um, on policy methods got basically the same performance as the off policy methods in in similar sample complexities, sim- similar number of samples to get to that performance. And, and we found this, you know, really surprising because I think the in in the single agent literature, the conventional wisdom is that these off-policy methods are, are, are a good deal more sample efficient uh, than, than the on-policy methods. And, and I think that's true, or at least in my experience has been true, but we, we're not finding this in this, in this multi-agent setting. Um, and I mean, a, a piece of this might be that... Uh, you know the, the 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 sense in which you get off policy happens a lot faster in the multi-agent setting. You know, so like everyone's policies are changing, so old samples become staler faster in some way. Uh, we weren't able to provide kind of empirical support for that hypothesis, but but we definitely yeah we feel pretty confident about this uh, <laughs> statement that the PBO methods performed really well in these benchmarks. Cool. Do you mind um, just briefly describing how multi-agent PPO differs from standard? PPO. How how does it uh, handle multi agents? Yeah, it's 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 quite quite straightforward. So instead of the value function just looking at your state, it takes in the state of all agents in the in the scene, and so that lets you get uh, more accurate value estimates. So it's like a centralized critic. Yeah, it is a centralized critic. We have a centralized critic and decentralized active. So train centralized, act decentralized. But I mean, another another thing that we found somewhat surprising is that at least in the StarCraft multi-agent challenge, it didn't really seem to matter very much. Like the the not using a centralized critic and just using straight up normal PPO for all the agents uh, also performed very well. I mean, I guess from the way I always think about it is that the off-policy stuff has a huge advantage of being able to use that we might have. And, and how would we ever deploy something that was on policy if it wasn't performing pretty well from the get-go. So I guess if you have a simulator, then then either one is equal, equally feasible. But in, a, in so many cases in the real world, I, I'm not sure if on policy would be, ever be realistic. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, um, I think that that's a, is a good point. Um, so I, I certainly think in single agent settings, like definitely off policy stuff is, is, is going to win out. You know, in the, a lot of the time we have a simulator. It's like pretty rare to me imagine a circumstance where we're genuinely thinking about an agent that learns in the world without some simulator pre-training phase. That is probably a controversial statement. I, I think this will not always be true. Like we will definitely get to the point where we're, we're training methods online in the real world. But but at the moment, you often have a simulator phase. And I mean, at least partially motivated by safety reasons, um, you want to start by testing your stuff out in simulation. So you have that simulator. I do think that if you if you wanted to deploy in the real world directly and learn there, then you definitely should be thinking about off policy methods. The well, okay, 
let me roll back slightly. So if you were trying to deploy a multi-agent system in the real world, given the statement I made about on-policy multi-agent RL having similar complexity to off-policy multi-agent RL in the benchmarks we looked at, then you know, you'd pro- probably should feel as comfortable deploying either one. Um, they're going to have similar sample complexity. Cool. So do you... Uh... Do you see like following this up? It sounds like there's a bunch of open open questions to follow up here too. Um, do you see pursuing that? Yeah, I mean the the the, the real open question to us is, is is why. You know how do we how do we quantify this 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 reason that the uh, policy methods do not seem to be working as well? Is there like some some notion of staleness that we can examine? And then like we we looked at this question in some really restricted settings. So this is cooperative, fully cooperative problems with discrete action spaces. So it's you know fully plausible that these statements I made are not true in other settings, and, and I'd like to know if they are or are not. So there should be some follow-up work on that on that question. And then just going back to some things that we talked about earlier. So with respect to these sequential social dilemmas, uh, you know, uh, Natasha and Joel's work on this um, was one of the inspirations for me starting up this show. Uh, I found it so fascinating the whole question of. Um, you know, how do we solve these sequential social dilemmas? These social dilemmas are a major problem in the world today, uh, in, in all sorts of contexts. And, uh, can any of this work, you know, ultimately help us solve them, um, in the real world in terms of, you know, free riders could be with respect to climate change. You know, if some nations don't sign an accord, they get a free ride on the emissions, um, and, you know, anti-vaxxers are kind of getting a free ride on everyone else being vaccinated. This shows up everywhere. Um, and I, some days I think it may be the central question of our time. How do we solve this, uh, these social dilemmas? So I guess I'm, my question here is, do you see, uh, you know, any of these lines of work um, helping us deal with the social dilemmas that, that, that are uh, admittedly, admittedly a lot more complicated? Uh, than the ones obviously tackled in simulation so far, but do you see them ever getting to the point where they might really help us um, solve these really thorny problems in the real world? Wow, what a question! Um, you know, to anyone listening, I'm gonna I'm gonna spitball a lot now, so I'm <laughs> less epistemically confident about my answers on this than than anything else. Um, so, so there's a lot of thorny pieces of this puzzle, right? So the first thing is, you know. Um, you could think about uh, using these methods to do things like incentive design, right? Like what are the appropriate uh, incentives to kind of push humans away from this? Um, and, and you could also think about um, things that that I'm quite interested in that are that are kind of like AI mediation. So like how can we um, modify uh, clusters of, of humans so that they're connected to the right people? Um, such that they start to like move towards the outcomes that they they actually want for themselves for their their society and so on. Um, a, a lot of this, though, you know, like you're not this. This goes back to this issue of the sample inefficiency of RL. You're not going to do this online. Uh, you're going to do this at least to start in simulation. And so now there's this this piece of how do you build uh, models of human beings and how they react to interventions and how they react to you know chatbots attempting interventions and modifications on their social network graph and so on. Um, and and lately there's been a lot of work building kind of like LSTM like models of how humans are going to respond to things that that have worked much better than I thought they would have. I would I would have guessed that some some human responses are quite hard to model. Um, but yeah, it, it really, the real blocker is like, how do you build models of human beings uh, such that you can then begin to study interventions on their behavior? But I think it's a, a really promising area. And, the, you know, it's, it's, re- it's really what we're all, I think, like kind of pushing to is trying to get better equilibria to emerge than, than currently do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, one thing that Natasha Jakes' paper showed on, on uh, social dilemmas was uh, sorry, on social influence was that social influence can be a helpful um, intrinsic motivation to uh, help agents solve these collective action problems. So the whole idea that um, uh, that 
that if the agents can influence each other, then they can work together as a group. And that that kind of seems like mm. um, intuitively true and maybe a bit obvious. And I get that, you know, are the state of RL today and the state of our simulations is such that um, those kind of questions are more tractable than 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 simulations that are trying to be extremely detailed with human behavior. But I can't mm-hmm. help but wonder if there's something inherent in game theory um, that can help us help us find our way through some of these messes that we're in right now. Um, and, and some of that might have to do with human behavior or some of it, maybe some of it is just pure game theory stuff. Uh, like you say, like if you design the mechanisms such, uh, then game theory uh, may tell us that we'll, we'll have a better time finding a better equilibria. I understand that this question is very vague, um, but the it comes up for me every time we touch on game theory in this podcast and every time we touch on social dilemmas, which is, seems to be a lot more often than I expected, partly because if it's, I think it's interesting. And, it, and, and as I say, I think it, it could be a central question of our time, whether we get through all this. Um, some of these tools seem seem relevant, and you know, uh, some top researchers. When DeepMind uh, describes what they're doing and their and their their hopes and aspirations, uh, they do talk about using AI to solve the most important problems of our time. And uh, and to me, this is this is maybe one of them. So so, so sorry to uh, to uh, drop this on you without <laughs> it wasn't even in the notes, but I, I couldn't help it. <laughs> yeah, no, I I, I like. As long as as long as you're comfortable uh, with me spitballing, like I am very happy to talk about this. Um, I, I I think you know I, I love uh, ambitious ambitious research. Um, you know I it's, I think it's good for people to say like I I want my research to tackle this like impossibly hard problem that we have no idea how to do. Like that's good. That's it's good to want to to, to your research to be useful and, and productive and. Um, uh, and you, sh- you know, you shouldn't feel too bad about stating ambitious things like that. Um, sorry, bit of a segue. Um, I, so yeah, so I think I think as far as like things like Natasha's paper go, which which I, I really love, like that that's a good example of like building in some kind of like s- structural priors into into multi agent reinforcement learning, right? You know, like uh, you kind of. Uh, have 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 some you know priors in the environment like agents influence other agents there are bit of, bits of your action space that don't influence other agents and, and these are two separate things and um and maybe maybe like building in more priors like what N- natasha did there is is part of the path towards uh more sample efficient multi-agent reinforcement learning um which is i think a, a key challenge um if reinforcement learning is inefficient multi-agent reinforcement learning is like 10 times as inefficient um uh, but yeah, I, th- I think one one kind of promising opportunity in this direction is not you know you're building models of human beings is hard, um, but what you can do is you can um, set up the problem you care about and then uh, train train a diverse array of agents to solve it, and hopefully like human behavior is somewhere within that superset, and then you can kind of refine and pick out the agents that you want that like coordinate well with the, the humans that you care about. So like maybe, maybe modeling humans is too hard, but maybe uh, getting human behavior to be included in the set of agent behaviors you generate is not impossible. Um, and I think that that's kind of a promising direction is just like uh, methods for training really diverse sets of agents that then you can, you can then select from. Uh, and and I, I think there's um some work uh, doing that in Overcooked uh, that I have seen. Uh, and I know that... Um, Sorry, what was that phrase? Overcooked? Yeah, Overcooked. So there's like... Uh, Overcooked is this, I guess, I've never played it, but I think a phone game where you collaborate with uh, some other folks to try and cook uh, a meal of some sort. Ah. And there's been some amount of work on like how to generate partners that... Uh, coordinate well with humans in that, and similarly, Jacob Forster has some some work on like how to generate agents that zero shot coordinate well with human beings in Hanabi, and so I, I think like the the moral community is starting to think about this question of uh, how do I you know generate agents that can interface with humans correctly, even though I cannot ever train with humans. So I, I do think we're starting to look at this question. 
Cool. Okay. So what else is going on? Uh, are there other things going on in RL or maybe in your your areas of interest that uh, that you find really interesting outside of your, your own work? Uh, oh, my God. So many things. So, uh-huh. so many things. <laughs> um, I really liked uh, of late, like a lot of the model-based RL work that's been happening. Model-based systems are nice. You know, we already have physical models of a lot of things. We have done, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred years worth of studying physics. And so it's always, you know, bothered me that that model-free methods are so prominent. And I think think this is probably shared by a ton of folks. Uh, but it, it really seems like the model-based RL methods are, are taking off and doing really well. And so I, I'm personally looking forward to, to playing with those and seeing, uh, seeing how well they work. And maybe looking at you know some extensions of that into the the, the multi agent domain, and you know I, I think I, I am hopefully starting to see more things where RL is turning out to be useful for some actual application. There you know there's the the, the chip design uh, paper from Google. There was this nice presentation uh, I think at Neurips on designing agents that could like pilot uh, hydrofoil so that. Uh, you could then do this like co-optimization where you design a new hydrofoil, and then you have the agents like pilot the hydrofoil, and then you can use that to like continually optimize the the the, the boat design. And so, like, I'm I'm very interested in um, trying to see where RL can actually be used to like create some real gains today. And the 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 corresponding like the 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 other side of that is like I, I've become very interested in in uh, like robustness of RL controllers. Mm-hmm. Um, because if if you like look if you look at an RL paper and you look at like the deviation of the, I mean this is this is this is separate from actually a little separate from Russ's but if you look at like the deviation of the results like you'll have like a Mujoko hopper that like eighty percent of the time gets ten thousand reward and and twenty percent of the time just falls on its face that's really not what you want and uh, and so yeah thinking about different ways to uh, enable robustness with regards to kind of like uncertainty in the the model of the system or uncertainty with respect to the behavior of the other agents in the system is something like uh, you know hopefully you'll be seeking more work for me some work for me in the future i think i think that that stuff is really promising cool i look forward to uh to reading about what you do there so what do you see yourself uh, speaking of that what do you see yourself doing uh in the next few years do you do you, do you think you'll be continuing your the themes that we've talked about uh of your work so far yeah, for sure. Uh, we've spent, you know, uh, five years designing cruise controllers that we wanted to put on the highway. Uh, we're getting ready to put them on the highway and then the summer and then in the following year, like put even more cruise controllers on the highway and see how this works at scale. So I am, you know, very optimistic about the ability of RL to design um, optimal cruise controllers uh, for for improving the throughput of the hi- the energy efficiency of the highway, and I think you know we'll hopefully be putting out some empirical evidence to that point. So definitely some some work going there. Yeah, and then uh, you know I care very much about multi agent RL becoming more sample efficient and you know therefore accessible to other researchers as a tool. And so definitely not going to stop working on that. Cool. Uh, on, on a personal note, I I um, drive a Tesla Model Three, and I just recently tried out the autopilot feature, which is the the adaptive cruise control. Uh, and it was both um, inspiring and a little bit terrifying because knowing what I know about, about AI actually made me probably more more concerned <laughs> <laughs> for my safety. No no incidents yet, but uh, and they did have a good good warning signal when uh, when you know anything unexpected happened. But uh, I look forward to that being even even better because I really don't trust the drivers on the road. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm like a terrible driver and I try not to drive. So I am ready for someone to automate me out of existence. <laughs> Please, someone do it. So Eugene, anything else uh, that you want to mention or, or I should have asked you about today? No, I th- this this has been really fun. I uh, You came you came prepared with some some solid questions. So yeah, thank, thank you for having me. Oh, it's been amazing. So do you have any suggestions for the uh, for the show or, or who we might feature next? Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you, so just, this is off the top of my head. Um, uh, Jacob Forster is extremely opinionated and has some really uh, interesting perspectives on moral research. Could be fun to have on. I think in terms of uh, some folks who's, I there's a Berkeley grad student, uh, Sarah Dean, who I hope I'm not putting on the spot, but like, I think does 
like amazing work on the robustness of machine learning methods. Yeah, I, I would be personally curious to, to hear her opinions on things coming from like a more like controls background. The, yeah, those are the two people who like spit off the top of my head. Cool. Eugene Vinitsky, this has been fantastic. Uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time out to speaking with us at TalkRL. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was really fun, Robin. Thanks, thanks again for having me. Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at talkrlpodcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. 